The challenge I think that many companies have is they have a lot of words, but not a lot of actions. They're also robbing their employers in the process because they have this piece of paper that says they did these things, but they didn't utilize the tools at the university, the courses to learn how to think. Simply going in and breaking up big sharks into you know tens or hundreds of piranhas is not a solution either, as some of these piranhas can virally grow back into another shark, and we've seen this many times over. Hello and welcome to episode 8 of Shine, a podcast by a star. And today we're joined by three incredibly deep and diverse thinkers to discuss a topic that's extremely relevant for all of us. The concept behind this episode is actually the Chinese symbol for crisis. This symbol has two separate paths. The first means danger and the second means a critical crossroads. And so we essentially see us as a human race at this crossroads in 2021 in the post-pandemic world. And so in the rest of this episode, we're going to be exploring the different directions that humanity can take at this critical point in our evolution and the role of education, technology, business and government in making the post-pandemic world a better place. So first up, we have Michael Schreibman, who is the co-founder and CEO of Star. We're also joined by Eric Asaki, who is a former healthcare professional, a current litigation attorney, and a recent Republican candidate for US Congress, and a longtime Silicon Valley executive, Ojas Reggae, who is currently the chief product officer at One Concern. So let's jump right into this episode, and the first voice you'll hear will be that of Michael Schreibman, Star's co-founder and CEO. Hi, I'm Michael Schreibman. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Star. We're a global consulting firm that focuses on product design, product development, and uh, broader innovation and digital transformation. Our clients span startups, mid-sized companies, and larger enterprises that are creating, scaling, or redefining their businesses across a number of industries, such as health and wellness, fintech, automotive and mobility, advertising, and a number of others. My background lies at the intersection of management and technology consulting, and I have a passion for building agile, high-performance teams of product creators. It's really great to be here. Good afternoon. I'm Eric Asaki. My background's a little bit unique for this forum. I don't have a, a background in tech. I was actually a nurse for about 10 years. I ended up going back to school to the University of Michigan, graduated with my law degree, practiced out in New York City at one of the big firms as a litigator, and then came back to Detroit, where I'm from. I had the unique experience recently to run for Congress in uh, Michigan's 11th Congressional District. It was a very contested race. I ended up losing by 2%. I did have to employ a lot of technology and, and learn some of the basics. So I'm uh, excited to be here, excited to talk about what the future holds. Hello, my name is Ojis Rege. I'm the Chief Product Officer at One Concern. We're a uh, technology uh, company that uh, builds solutions to help organizations and communities become more resilient against natural disasters and climate change. It's very nice to be here. So we're going to attempt to broach this topic from three separate dimensions. These are how people learn, how people work, and ultimately how people live uh, in the coming 12 months, in the coming 36 months. Now, the first area that I'd like to dive into, please, is how people learn. So the question 
that I want to ask the floor first, and I'd actually like to go to Michael first if possible, is how do we think education is going to evolve from here? Thanks, Tom. Let me take out my crystal ball here. Well, actually, you really don't need a crystal ball to see where education will go from here. Even before the pandemic, education, particularly higher education in the US, was at the top of the list for industries that are ripe for disruption. One common way we determine this disruptability, if you will, is by looking at the price of the specific product over time and compare it to the general inflation and whether consumers are really getting more utility or value out of paying higher prices. Well, back to college education in the US, if its cost has outpaced the inflation by nearly five times, while if you look at the outcomes, one metric, for example, is 30-year-olds today who earn more than their parents did at the same age, that's about 65 or 70% of what it was in the 1970s. So clearly we are getting much less for what we pay for. The evolutionary forces that drive how students learn across all grade levels have already been set in motion in response to this. The so-called MOOCs, uh, that's an acronym for massive online open courses from top institutions such as Harvard, MIT, etc., is just one example of what's already been happening. And the pandemic had definitely accelerated this shift, forcefully removing the fear of going completely online from the heads of students, from parents, from educators. It's been like uh, ripping the Band-Aid. Or another analogy I have is like penguins that had already been lined up at the edge of the ice sheet and afraid to jump for the fear of sharks and other dangers in the water. Well, they've all been pushed into the water at the same time and in lockdown and only to realize that for the most part, it's actually pretty safe in the water. So technologically, we're kind of there already. Of course, we will see continued incremental evolution in the underlying technologies and platforms, things like augmented reality, uh, systems that offer much deeper immersion, engagement, and experience, etc. We're actually working on some of these projects with our clients at Star. But to me, the delivery of education is not really the big question. The big question is what the students need to be learning today that's different from what their parents learned in order to be able to navigate the modern world. And I see that there are three tectonic changes that need to happen to the curriculum not just in college, but I think from the earliest appropriate grade level. Number one is understanding how things actually work in the realm of internet technology and the whole sort of set of ethical considerations around it. For instance, what does free really mean for users of free internet platforms, such as social media, gaming, etc.? And how do the companies make money in these spaces? so that people understand in which cases they are the product and in which cases they are the true users in a more traditional sense of that word. Now, number two, as far as the curriculum is concerned, is about understanding how democratic governments work and what they do, including the history and facts and what governments do to help people live safer, healthier, more productive lives. The pandemic has laid bare tremendous mistrusts and skepticisms of the century-old democratic institutions and nearly pushed us to the brink of a much bigger disaster, as we've all seen here in the U.S. 
people need to understand the complex inner workings of the governments and they need to understand it much better so that they can make more critical and informed decisions. And last but not least, number three is uh, our education system needs to teach students how to better cope with the ever increasing volatility and uncertainty of the world that seems to be moving faster and faster. You know, this may mean more emphasis on basic neuroscience, psychology, you know, the way we actually um, process information and react to it and behave, but also tools like mindfulness and meditation, which have clinically been proven now as very effective uh, mechanisms for coping with this ever uncertain world. So in my view, all three areas, you know, the technology understanding, the government inner workings, and, and also the dealing with uncertainty, all three of these need to find their way into the required parts of the general education that students receive now and in the future. Yeah, you know, Michael, I think that's right. I, I like to look at problems kind of through a historical lens. And if you look at throughout history, the purpose of a university was to provide an education where people otherwise couldn't get it. We've seen technology expand learning platforms in so many ways, uh, whether it's just simply going on YouTube and watching a lecture from Yale. I've done that countless times. So the question is, what purpose are universities going to fulfill in the immediate future and then long-term, when we have these other resources at our disposal, we wanted to go to university to get a, a good, well-rounded view of the world and, and learn. But we can get that through technology. And so how can we tweak to, uh, universities and what we're learning? How can employers expand by using technology to train their employees and teach courses that are very specific to that job, knowing that folks can go and, and get this larger background through technology these days and don't necessarily have to go and, and uh, especially in today's days, spending, you know, tens of thousands or sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars to do it. You know, I just think about um, when I was growing up, uh, you know, in elementary school in the 70s and high school in the 80s, uh, we had the three R's, right? Arithmetic, reading, writing. And I kind of feel like that's not enough anymore that we have to revisit the content elements of what constitute education. And I was just thinking about this last night, which is maybe we have to add the two A's to those three R's and those A's being awareness and ambiguity. And the reason I say that is that if I look at what's the way discovery uh, has worked over the course of the last hundred years, and by discovery, I mean learning of new things that are then taught to people, a lot of it assumed the foundation was relatively set and we were learning new things. And so in a university setting or a secondary school setting, I'm teaching those new things, whether it's science-based or others, to the students. But to your point at the beginning, Tom, around the Chinese symbol for crisis and the notion of being at a critical crossroads, if the foundational elements start changing, then it's not just discovery of new, it's also being able to get awareness of how our world is changing moving forward, and then dealing with the ambiguity of that, knowing that some of the foundational things that we might have expected to be in, in place that drove a lot of what we expected to happen in the world moving forward might be changing. And that to me is kind of the notion of how do you take crossroads and bring it into the educational system. If you can layer an awareness of how those changes are progressing and then give students the ability to tolerate ambiguity and come out of it more positively on the other end, then we'll have a much stronger you know, and better educated set of uh, individuals coming through the system, regardless of what technology we use. 
the answers spanning across all three of those, I think were focused on one part of the current education system, which is actually a education, and I'm referring to higher education here, and actually I believe, or other people believe, that you can split higher education or the value of higher education into three different areas, one of which is education, the second of which is the credential, and then the third of which is the experience. Now, I have found it very interesting to discover that Google now offer a course, and this goes back, I think, with Eric's point, where you mentioned that employers do need to start offering this kind of learning. But Google are saying that people that graduate through this course, that will count equally to an Ivy League education at a presumably, or I believe, a fraction of the cost. So what do we think happens to these large educational institutions when uh, one piece of their value proposition is being taken by Google, the other piece of the experience? Right now, people are not getting the experience because you can't go on campus. What do we think the future holds for these higher education institutions? I think over the last 20, 30 years, we've lost some of the intrinsic value of education. And, you know, we saw 100 years ago when university wasn't necessarily open to like it is now, uh, people went because they wanted to learn as an end in itself. Uh, We're seeing folks going to universities to get a piece of paper so they can get a job. And by doing that, they are robbing themselves of something that's of higher value. And uh, they're also robbing their employers in the process because they have this piece of paper that says they did these things, but they didn't utilize the tools at the university, the courses to learn how to think. And ultimately, you know, Every course we take in university, whether it's literature or drama, any of the liberal arts, they're as as sort of a conduit to learn how to think and analyze critically. And in today's world, we need much more of that. I mean, I saw on the campaign trail, we live in an attention economy where snippets of attention are, you know, we use snippets to get attention and we don't see a lot of critical thinking. We would be wise to sort of go back to that model of learning, whether it's in a university setting or whether it's using the tools that we have through technology to expand our just general understanding of things and and use those to learn how to think more critically. I completely agree with what you just said. And the notion of you're educated so that you learn how to think, that that is like the foundation. (laughs) It really is. And how do we do that more effectively moving forward? And and Derek, you were talking about higher ed. You know, I think of, you know, elementary and secondary as well, because at that point, you're also trying to kind of instill the love of learning. And so I think that as we as we move forward, higher education can become more experiential. But one thing that I've seen, and I think other parents have seen too, during the pandemic is that higher ed, you know, students have figured out ways to get things done. The bigger challenges have been in the younger grades where the notion, the experience has been so fundamental to the learning process in the past, and now it's not there, right? At least for some period moving forward. So the future for higher ed is that it will likely become more accessible to people, both to the current demographics, but also to the different ones. The traditional constraints of teaching people in physical auditoriums, for example, or classrooms, well, they're being dropped. Uh, So a professor can now teach 500 students rather than 100 per class at a minimum to zero marginal cost. So in other words, it doesn't really cost much more to add participants to your classroom, which is a very good news for prices of education. It's likely going to come down quite significantly. Also, I think the, this experience aspect that's been and will, I think, continue to be extremely attractive to younger generations once we return back on campuses. You know, this is about having fun, joining sororities, fraternities, really 
mingling with people of your age groups, that aspect is not going to be an obstacle for 30, 40, and 50-year-olds who will want to take their classes, but currently don't because of these social stigmas. They don't really fit into the traditional university population. So I think we will see uh, uh, more people in these age groups and more lifetime learners in general. And also, to quickly go back to my earlier point, higher education institutions should play the most important role in illuminating discussions around the inner workings of liberal democracies and, and their governments in order to repair these rifts and that we've seen, and also in order to bring people's mistrusts and skepticisms back to their much healthier levels. I'm not talking about eliminating them completely because it's it's not what democratic societies are based on, but uh, we have to bring them back to the healthy level, the constructive level, as opposed to what we're, we've been seeing through the pandemic. On the topic of keeping up with technology, let's now shift into the realm of work. And this has already been alluded to in the first 15 minutes of this discussion, but we've seen billions, if not trillions, added onto the market cap of four technology businesses over the past 12 months, uh, where we've seen a, a large section of other businesses flounder. What do we think is going to happen to these big four technology companies as the shift to digital continues? I think speaking as a lawyer, the courts are notoriously slow at keeping up with the pace of technology. But it's something that's over you know, the last month or two with the censoring of, of various political speech, something that they're they're going to have to address, that our legislature is going to have to address. And you know, I like to think of this and, and technology and being able to use the platforms to get your point across. I mean, it's almost as important as any other utility that we live with, whether it's water or electricity. And, you know, it's very troubling to think that AT&T or one of your, your energy company could shut off your electricity to your home because they don't necessarily agree with, with your particular positions on politics or anything else. Using what has become essentially a, a utility that we have to have, which is social media and other technologies, you know, using that to sort of coerce a particular behavior uh, is a scary thing. And I think it's something that is important for government, for the judicial system to take a look at. We have to be careful, though, because the technologies evolve so rapidly that you can't regulate these things. Right? The fundamental issue that we have with things like social media platforms, it, there's a conflict of interest, right? which is that it, my social media platform is going to be more powerful if I have more and more people. So I want to drive adoption, which then helps me drive um, revenue because I'm an advertising supported model. So the key thing here, I think, and this is challenge, and I don't have any solutions for this, is that we have a circumstance where if people are asking, so should social media platforms have a response, or any platform for that matter, have a responsibility for how people use it? And there's kind of a fundamental philosophical and probably policy-based, you know, kind of question underneath that, which is a very difficult question to answer, which is what is the responsibility you take? But then if we look at purely the economics of it, is it is very easy if I'm a, a social media platform just to step back and just say, well, I'm just a platform. I just want more people on the platform and I want to be able to, you know, drive my 
ad-driven business, which is in essence what generally the, the social media platforms have. So I think that if we can somehow get smarter as, as a community in understanding uh, how you segment out those different decisions, I think it'll be better. But it's a really difficult thing to do. And I don't see that, you know, a good solution for that anytime in the near future, because there are such fundamental conflicts of interest at the core. You know, as an economist by education, I, of course, agree that economics is what drives businesses. But let's explicitly distinguish here between users and customers. Even within the big four tech companies, those are very, very different. For Facebook and mostly for Google, you and I are the users and advertisers are the customers because they pay for it. So we are essentially the product for these companies. For Apple, on the other hand, people who use the products and services of Apple are the people who pay for them. So advertisers are, for the most part, out of the picture, at least directly out of the picture. For Amazon, it's kind of the hybrid between the two. They get their money from all over their ecosystem. You know, the people who buy stuff, people who supply stuff, companies who use Amazon Web Services and, and, and advertisers, of course, which is why it's so formidable I believe there's so much room still, though, for business model innovation there. And there is a massive opportunity for the big four to continue to disrupt themselves, but also for the thousands of other companies to disrupt the big four. For example, what could the alternative business model for a social media company be that does not depend on advertisers or on data sharing? Naturally, something where the users become paying customers or perhaps even a Wikipedia-like donations-based model come to mind. This disruption may happen with or without government's involvement, but it's clear to me that if government is to play an important role in tech, whether it's through regulation or deregulation, then it needs to be focused on encouraging this business model innovation, or at least not to stave it off. I know it's easier said than done, but Simply going in and breaking up big sharks into tens or hundreds of piranhas is not a solution either, as some of these piranhas can virally grow back into another shark, and we've seen this many times over. Still keeping within the realm of work, Michael, you mentioned something interesting in one of the calls we had before this recording, in that style may typically see the stakeholders of the business being the customers, the investors, and the employees. But you also mentioned that now, either recently or right now, you're focused on another stakeholder, which is the community. So people outside of Star who don't fit into one of those three groups. A, what are you doing around that? And B, why do you think that is more of a trend at this time now and will be going forward? Let me comment in reverse order, Tom. I think that corporate social responsibility, which is broadly defined as a holistic view of the company of how its business impacts all of its stakeholders, not just the shareholders, but a broader set of constituents, such as employees, communities, the environment, etc. So I think that is going to be elevated in its importance to a whole new level. Why do I think that? Well, because the pandemic also accelerated a number of very alarming and negative sort of megatrends. One such trend uh, that is clearly visible, not the least because of the politicization of the pandemic, is referred to as an erosion of empathy, which is also helped greatly by the way social media currently functions, rewarding negative engagement or conflict, if you will, you know, people fighting and bickering over issues, rewarding it more than, than, than positive engagement or calmer engagement. So 
naturally this this happened a lot more during the lockdown where people had more time to spend at their screens but also had a lot more uncertainty and economic anxiety to deal with so that's that's one important trend you know the erosion of uh, empathy the other big trend which partly stems from the first one is disintegration of communities without being able to get together you know in classrooms and churches and at entertainment events birthday parties etc cetera, etc cetera, people have had a very limited um, opportunity for true familiar human to human interaction which also could have included debates reconciliations and so on and so forth you know the fact that many people lost their jobs and this was also naturally more pronounced in certain communities it that didn't help as it added to this sense of economic and social anxiety that I mentioned before. So I think the companies now have an imperative to cover these issues as they are in a sense more critical today than the kind of the traditional long-term CSR initiatives such as climate change, you know, eradication of diseases and so on and so forth. So now back to the first part of your question, which is what are we doing about this? You know, I believe the companies need to be, before they try to do something about this, they need to be fully on brand when it comes to corporate social responsibility. And what I mean by that is that simply refocusing your CSR on fixing empathy and community is meaningless unless you have successfully demonstrated that you can do this within your own company and team. It takes a special and sort of consistent culture to do that. As an example, when we at Star were evaluating our options at the height of the pandemic or the beginning of the pandemic even, and trying to turn every stone in order to be able to save jobs and keep our business engine humming because clearly some of our customers were affected and that dominoed into our business. One of the things that we did is we asked everyone, and that includes everyone, you know, I was part of that and the whole management team as well. We asked the whole team to sort of quote unquote, donate their accumulated vacation balances back to the company, as this is an important liability and expense item for companies with many employees. In exchange, what we did we is we introduced an unlimited vacation policy for our team, which basically allows people to take whatever time they need to uh, recharge. And at the same time, this no longer hits our PNL or the balance sheet. So had we not built a, a culture of trust and empathy within STAR, this would have been a, a very contentious issue, as you can imagine. Instead, we pulled together as a team, or you could say as a community, and helped save many jobs and save, helped save our business engine as a result. So I'm very confident that our team ambassadors can now make similar impact on their communities because they really understand the mutual costs and benefits involved, which is what I think a healthy community is all about. The challenge I think that many companies have is they have a lot of words, but not a lot of actions. And you know, in the end, the actions have to have an ROI. The chief executive of the company is beholden to his or her shareholders. That's their job. That's what they should be doing. And I think what we are starting to see now, and this took a while, is the notions of things like corporate social responsibility or ESG, right, which is the environmental, social, and governance uh, lens of that as well. These are now starting to actually have an ROI. So the most powerful thing I think that happened in January of 2021 
was the letter that uh, BlackRock CEO Larry Fink posted. And BlackRock is the world's most powerful investor, right? And for the first time, this happened first a year ago and then was reiterated this month or last month in, in January. And it was very clear that said, and he was looking in this specifically like climate, but it, it actually affects the broader, I think, ideas that we're talking about here. But he said that uh, they would, meaning BlackRock, would be looking at the business models of every single investment they made to understand how those companies were committing to a net zero world at some, you know, in some time frame moving forward. And that's when you start having ROI, right? When investors start saying, I'm going to give you or not give you money based on the actions that you're taking. And something very interesting happens, like happened during COVID, which is that organizations started to realize that things like sustainability actually had an ROI. So it was good business for them. If that also happens on the corporate social responsibility front because of either employee demand, community demand, consumer demand, whatever else it might be, the moment that you have dollars and cents and an ROI attached to the actions, that's when I think those words become you know, something much more impactful than what many companies have shared, but not done historically. And now we're going to shift to how people live. And the first topic that I would like to put to the floor is this rise of inequality. One stat that I thought was pretty amazing was that 40% of people living with a household below $40,000 per year um, have lost their jobs slash have been furloughed, but that's only 13% for those households with over $100,000 of income. Well, what do we think governments can do about this divide in the coming 12 months and further forward? I obviously have a lot of opinions on this issue, being a more conservative candidate, political candidate. But I will say that, you know, we have become sort of fixated on the rise of inequality, and, and it certainly exists to an extent. But I don't know that it gives us all of the answers that we're looking for. If there are more people, if the inequality gap has grown so that the richest are more rich, and the poorest have less money, but their buying power is greater than what it used to be 20, 50, 100 years ago. I'm not so certain that that is as big of a problem as we're making it out to be. Uh, and it doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to address poverty. I think we absolutely should. I think it's an important component, but I think it's misleading to just look at the number or the widening inequality gap. Because, you know, for example, if you could take you know, one one hundredth of your work and buy a loaf of bread today, whereas 50 years ago it would have taken 10 one hundredths, uh, you're in a better position. You have bigger, better buying power. So what does it matter if the richest folks among us have created a world where those sort of basic necessities have gotten cheaper? And I think that's one of the things technology has done. And I think that's why we see these sort of mega billionaires like like the um, the Bill Gates and the, and the Steve Jobs, who have created this world where uh, we're essentially getting these services at a lower rate, and, and it's actually improved our quality of life, and they've gotten rich doing it, but that was the incentive that was there for them to have the impact that they had on everybody. I believe the divide is real, and it has massive impact on the daily lives of people. And, you know, lots has been talked about the digital divide, racial divide, economic divide, and so forth. I'll mention an aspect of it, which, which we've been working on, which is what we call the resilience divide. So as I said, we do work in resilience, meaning how do communities and organizations respond to natural disasters like pandemics, climate change, and so on. And absolutely, the ability 
communities to respond to really bad stuff is absolutely correlated to their economics. I mean, it sounds obvious, and it is. But what that means is that as we're in an environment, it is true that I may be able to buy two loaves of bread, but I'm not going to be able to recover the way other neighborhoods are going to be able to recover when something bad happens, uh, whether that bad is a pandemic or something else. So I believe that the approach to this is not to look historically, but it's to say what happens when shocks hit the system and how do different communities respond to that? Do they have the economics and the tools to be able to respond effectively? And then how are we serving those communities moving forward to make sure that they can continue to improve their lot in life? But this notion of a reserve is, is definitely there. We see it um, in every single disaster that happens across the globe today. And I don't disagree that there's a lot we can do to help folks out. Um, the question, though, is what role does inequality and the widening gap have in our ability to do that? The fact that there are mega billionaires in existence doesn't impact an impoverished community's ability to respond to a crisis. So I think putting the onus on the rich as if it's somehow their fault when they are creating goods and services that have made them rich because people have wanted them, because what they have provided to the world has improved the world. I don't think demonizing them is, is the answer. I think focusing on how we can get resources to impoverished areas so that they can better cope and respond and, and live a more uh, dignified and productive life is important. But I think we are not going to find those solutions if our focus is on how rich people have gotten especially when they've gotten rich through justifiable and fair means. Yeah, so I don't think we're actually talking about how rich people got rich here. What I'm referring to is how do you help people that on the other side of the divide? So, for example, take technology. When you want to, you can provide incentives for new sets of technology to start the flywheel moving to help companies innovate. And then at that point where the role of policy comes in place is how do I provide access so I can create lots of lots of new technologies, but if those are only accessible to a subset of the population, then I've got a real problem. And so this notion of how do you help disenfranchised and impoverished communities get access to the types of resources and technology, just like the educational conversation we were having before, to be able to improve their standing is really fundamental. And that is a role that policy and government can play. Luke. I also think the divide is real, and the pandemic had disproportionately impacted different parts of the spectrum. Some, including honestly people in my industry, have benefited visibly. You know, we cut down on our commute times, we're spending more time with family, we kept our jobs. Tech companies in general are faring extremely well in the stock markets. But the owners of our neighborhood restaurants, our hair salons, have seen their livelihoods and savings practically evaporate. It's tough. It's a tough one for, for democratic governments to help fix because unlike autocratic or centralized systems, the decision making here is distributed. Debate and criticism is encouraged. Privacy and freedom of speech are protected. This is the reason we've seen a much more effective response uh, to the pandemic from less democratic or undemocratic governments, especially like those that have amassed significant resources like China, for example. So it's a really hard one, especially under the leadership that, that actively promoted mistrust, alternative facts, conspiracy theories, and, and, and also generally the government that bows to the powerful special interests. 
But beyond all of this, there's a lot of data, there's, there are facts and, and insights from the recent past. You know, this is not the first global crisis and very likely not going to be the last one. So there is a vast body of knowledge that should be mobilized when making policy decisions. And hopefully this could be elevated above party lines and differences or above special interests. But I realize that it is much easier said than done. Moving forward from your point about the US government's uh, response to the crisis, what role do we think the trust, the trust of the people have in the government, what role do we think that has played in the outcome of the fight between COVID and the US? You know, when we were having uh, the discussion about education earlier, I mentioned that we should add these two A's, awareness and ambiguity to the uh, three R's, or however many R's there are. (laughs) And I do feel like this is an area, COVID has been a case study for how fractured awareness um, leads to poor response, poor compliance, poor behavior, and so forth. You know, what was interesting is right at the beginning of... um, the pandemic, uh, we have someone in our team who actually grew up in Wuhan. And so her entire family lives there, which was, of course, where the pandemic first started. And so she went through it all remotely, hearing what was happening. And I remember her telling me in January, so I think it had already come here to the US, but we didn't really know that at the time, right? She said, if this comes to the US, we're going to be in so much trouble because no one is going to listen to anyone. And that's what happened, I think, which is that um, it was really difficult for individuals to understand what was real, what was not real, what to do, what level of gravity to place in the situation. And so, you know, we had the chaotic scenarios that we had, which resulted in us having a much poorer response than um, any other country or most other countries in the world. We do a lot of work in Japan and the U.S. And comparing what's happened in Japan to comparing uh, to the U.S., It's been night and day. Your employer was absolutely right, Ojas. This is exactly what I was alluding to in my previous commentary. There has been a massive rift in public trust of government under Trump's administration. And as a result, many people stopped listening to the experts. But also to be fair, many experts didn't always listen to the people either. This erosion of trust will be very hard to repair, but I'm actually optimistic that it will get easier once the economy improves and jobs return. What's also slightly ironic is that, you know, the most diehard supporters of personal liberties and freedoms who mistrust the government and mistrust the powerful big corporations that are, you know, in their minds ruling the world, those very people are choosing the platforms whose, and you know, like Facebook, whose power they despise. (laughs) They're choosing them to express their mistrust. And then, of course, Facebook exploits their personal data and turns around and and dissects it and sells it to the very government they despise or oppose, who then target them with political campaigns and messaging. So as I said before, there is also a big role for education to play in repairing this trust. I think that there's certainly a role for government to play. But we also see government costing a lot of money. And it's not just in terms of the taxes that we're paying, but it's in terms of the cost of doing business. So one of the things, I mean, when we're talking about uh, decreasing the inequality gap, 
to, to have somebody try and enter into a new market with all of the regulations that they have to sift through. And, and as a lawyer, I'm, I'm well aware of them. Uh, it's nearly impossible for somebody to do it without huge investments in capital. And where does a, where does a lay person go to get that? And we've complicated our world and then world and then government adds additional layers of complication to that. So I don't know that government's always the answer. I mean, I think that as a, a more conservative leaning individual, I would start with a presumption against the use of government to solve our problems. I think that the private sector has shown that they're much more apt at doing so than the government, whether it comes to vaccine distribution or the creation of a vaccine. I mean, government isn't what is is uh, providing these sources. They might provide some of the fuel to get it going. But the FDA, for a long time, if they wouldn't have lifted the regulations of the FDA, we would not have a vaccine today. And so you can make the argument that, you know, they did a cost-benefit analysis. But, you know, if you're the one dying with cancer and there's a new treatment coming and the FDA has it in trials for 10 years, there's a cost-benefit analysis there to you too as well. And so I think we need to to have a balance. And look, a lot of this is about striking the, the appropriate balance. Going back to, to the response to COVID though, and then this is something that's important to me because number one, I was a nurse and then I was campaigning throughout the onset and, and we've seen COVID get worse. You know, a couple of things. Again, we live in an attention economy and the government you know, we'd see snippets on the news, on social media about the efficacy of mask wearing, whether we should wear one, whether we shouldn't. And we never had consistent data from the start. We had politicians reacting instead of taking a minute to sit back and think about what the appropriate course of action was. So the fact that we have skepticism surrounding the wearing of masks, I think, can be attributed to the early response. We had the CDC saying, don't wear them. Then we said, and that was largely because they were worried that healthcare workers wouldn't have them. But then they should be open, honest, and transparent about it because now they've created the skepticism towards masks. I think the other aspect of this, too, is that, you know, the masks have become a political symbol where people can kind of look and say, okay, yeah, they're compliant. They care about me. That's great. But we also see very patronizing comments from politicians that say they're just following the science, but then they don't point to the science that they're following. When you go and look at some of the studies, they suggest that masks are effective if they are worn correctly. And you're asking lay people who don't wear, you know, to reuse masks multiple times, who don't know how to wear them correctly, who aren't, don't have necessarily the best fit for the mask. And all of those things are important to consider too. And so, you know, again, I, I think each person, and I think the government, we need to to sit back and approach things with more reason and logic and, and less sort of reaction uh, just to get uh, the headlines for the moment or the passing minute. And on that note, I'm going to bring us through to our final question. And we've touched a vast variety of different topics. I want to circle this round to a more optimistic note. And I'm going to ask each of you, what do you see as the most exciting impact of the trends that we've discussed today over the next five to 10 years? And we'll kick off with Oges. Well, we've discussed a lot of trends today. To me, the most important, and again, it's because of my bias on, on the industry I work in, but the most important use of all these technologies for us over the next five to 10, 50 years is to figure out how to actually get to an economic base that is net zero, meaning where what we produce as far as emissions is uh, obviated by what we uh, what we reduce, right? So what I put in, I take out. 
And the implications of that are really substantial because it means uh, new technologies for power generation, new technologies for power distribution and usage, different economics for the way organizations run. As I think everyone knows, there's a lot of investment that's happening in many countries, actually outside the U.S., around um, these new technologies. And whoever wins that game is going to win the next hundred years in terms of economic power. Well, yeah, you know, something that, you know, we didn't talk about a lot was healthcare, but, you know, naturally being a nurse for 10 years, it's something that's important to me. And, you know, it's something that we need to work hard on fixing because, it's too expensive. It's not sustainable. And, uh, you know, I was privy when I was campaigning and visiting a lot of different uh, manufacturers and technology hubs here in, in and around the Detroit area. And the promise that technology shows in improving our healthcare system, in making it cheaper, and in, in providing more services to the underprivileged and impoverished areas and, and sort of closing that gap when it comes to healthcare, I think, you know, is important. I think it's something that's getting a lot of focus. And I think it's really exciting uh, to be able to do that. And in, in some ways, you know, I think that this COVID pandemic has sped up those processes in a good way to understand that, you know, this isn't uh, 1890, this is 2021, and we can reach people and treat them and help them by using technology and much cheaper platforms than what we were otherwise able to do. And I'm seeing that, uh, you know, I visited one of the number one uh, medical supply companies in the country while I was campaigning and the innovation going on there on the technology side to get the appropriate supplies to people in the most cost efficient way uh, and saving just an extraordinary amount of money leveraging technology. Uh, same way with, with home healthcare. Uh, manpower in healthcare is obviously expensive or woman power when it comes to, you know, home healthcare. Uh, technology is able to replace a lot of that being digitally uh, directly linked to the system where, where your healthcare provider can review results and, and really monitor you almost on a consistent basis. And, and seeing more of that, supporting more of that, I think is, is very promising and, and will be very interesting over the next few years. So I'm excited about many of the trends we're seeing and we've discussed here, not the least because, of course, STAR is deeply involved in helping our clients harness these trends and make the best out of them. But if I am to abstract a bit and, and go back to the critical crossroads theme that is the subject of this podcast, I'm most excited about those trends that will help protect and perhaps even future-proof our democratic institutions. So if you take a mega trend such as autonomous driving, as an example, I would claim that it is a regime agnostic trend. In other words, as soon as it's ready for prime time, it will be copied and adopted with as quickly in autocratic or dictatorships countries as it is here in the West. And in fact, you know, for the reasons we discussed, probably faster in autocratic societies because they can simply steamroll through many obstacles without debate. So I'm actually looking at those trends that will not be adopted by dictatorships or undemocratic societies, such as the social media networks whose business model is not based on data, as I mentioned earlier, or uh, news platforms that have world-class AI and machine learning powered fact-checking mechanisms and engines, or cybersecurity systems and technologies that can help protect the intellectual property and other assets of the people and companies who have worked very hard under the law to create them. Michael, Eric, 
And Ojaz, I want to thank you so much for coming on and sharing your insights around this topic. Michael, specifically, your the analogy of the education institution standing as penguins on the edge and being pushed off into the water and realizing actually there is no sharks. Eric, your point regarding that inequality doesn't necessarily mean we can't serve and help people in poverty and the distinction between those two things was really interesting to me. And then urges your three R's and the two A's that we're currently missing or, or maybe missing in education, the awareness and the ambiguity. I thought that was very enlightening. And so I think that we what we have done today is ideally aided and educated the listener to become aware of the crossroads and ideally help to take us down a better path from the crossroads. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, and what did we think of that episode? I am extremely grateful for Eric, Michael, and Ojas for coming on and sharing their diverse thoughts about this critical crossroads that we face as a human race. I'm also extremely grateful for you for giving us your time and listening in to this show. If you do have any feedback, please leave that in the form of an Apple podcast review. And of course, please subscribe on your favorite podcast listening app. Thank you for listening.